God, we are grateful that you have left with us your Holy Spirit. And we believe that his presence is not mythical, but it's real. And at this very time and place, in this very building, among this very people, all of us who have flesh and blood and are breathing, we believe your spirit is present. We believe he's present inside those of us who have given our hearts to you, Jesus. And we believe uh, with all of us, he's outside talking and reminding. And so would you give us ears to hear whether the spirit is speaking from within us or for those among us who have not yet made that decision to follow you, whether the spirit is speaking from without. Give us ears to hear. And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. Uh. Today is uh, red ink pen day. Everybody should have a red ink pen. All right, hold it up, please. Let's make sure I have, everybody has one, all right? These cost 11 cents a piece, so please be careful with them. Just kidding. And we are going to collect them at the end, so unless you really need it, then you can keep it, all right? Now, the red ink pen, uh, for those of you who have been in school, which is most of us, is something that is often used to mark up a paper, a test, and often the red ink pen isn't always pleasant. All right. Um, there's teachers among us, you know, Marcus and Paul Guyard teach at IU. There's others that are high school and middle school teachers. Um, but I used to be a math teacher, so, you know, the big red X, which is something nobody liked to see. Here's what I want you to do. Turn your paper over on the blank side. And on the top of the paper, um, put what you might see at the top of a paper or a test that you did not do well on. All right, whatever you think that would be. It could be a mark, could be some comments. Uh, just what would you not want to see on a paper or a test? Uh, just a couple marks. Frown- if you're, if you're you know, more likely elementary age, you could put a frowny face. All right. So some of you probably put like, some of you, some of you may put a grade down, like a C or a D or something even worse. Some of you may have put a frowny face. Some of you may have put, please see me. Um... Some of you may have put, you know, what were you thinking? What are you really stupid? I mean, my guess, some of you have gotten some comments from teachers or professors that may have been on that end. But in in generally, you you know right away when you see something. All right. Now just flip it over. I mean, flip it over this way. On the top side, put a mark or something that you would like to see on a paper that you were doing well on. A test, a paper, whether it's a smiley face, a check plus, or... Sorry, we don't have any stars to stick to it. I don't know. You could draw a star. What, what are the kind of things that when you're elementary or even college age that you'd love to see at the top of a paper? All right. Some of those may have been smiley faces, like I said, check pluses or way to go or uh, whatever else. All right. Anybody else put something unique down? I'm just curious. Anything unique? Like awesome job or you're so awesome. Is that what you put down? Awesome job. Awesome job. Way to go. All right. Now, um, if you're new here this morning, just so you know, we don't always pass these out. Like this is something we're just, I'm trying to just do something different, but I want you to think about the kind of things we get, like for school, those kind of markings. Or if you're an athlete, sometimes you get markings of good performance, bad performance, certain way we grade our performance. If you're a musician, there are certain ways your performance is graded, Right? We all are in situations, or all have been in situations, where our, our performance, and to some degree, even our character is graded. Maybe it's a job evaluation, but there's, there's ways in which we get kind of the red pen 
and we get things we don't really like to hear. Other times we get things I love. We get affirmation. Sometimes we get correction. And sometimes we don't know what to do with both of those because rarely do we score 100% all the time. Some of you do on some things, but all the time, if you're a human being like the rest of us, whether it's school, sports, music, or whatever job for you, you're going to get some frowny faces and you're going to get some smiley faces, right? So here's the question of the morning. Does does Jesus uh, carry a red ink pen? And some of you might like, oh, no, he can't. I hate the, you know, the red ink pen kind of thing. But does Jesus carry a red ink pen? Does he offer not only, not to be trivial, the smiley faces, the check pluses, like way to go, but there are often times where Jesus may come to you and say, you know, frowny face or please see me. And he's not saying that as a condemning kind of demeaning kind of teacher, professor, evaluator, coach, band director, whatever. But can we take both of those from Jesus? And, and, And my point is, I think Jesus does often carry a red pen in a sense because he loves to affirm us. And we're going to see this in some of the things we look at today. But there's times where he needs to correct us. And sometimes we don't know how to handle both of those well or we get clouded up and we just don't like the frowny faces because we... We thought when we signed up for Christianity, it was all about positive strokes and, and some misunderstandings. So here, what we've been doing the last few weeks, go to the next slide, Keaton. The last few weeks is talking about the book of Revelation. Opening line of the book of Revelation uh, is this is a revelation of Jesus Christ. So the book of Revelation is the last book in the New Testament. So it's about like here. I just put part of it on here for you because I know not all of you carry Bibles to church. Sometimes you put it on PowerPoint, but I just wanted to put it in front of you today. And it's essentially John, uh, go to the next slide, Keaton. And so we add, out of that, that's why we've been asked you to pray every day, whenever you can remember it, Jesus, reveal yourself to me. From now until 11-11, which is November 11th, could be asking that for yourself. You might pray for your husband, your wife, your kids, your parents, your employers, your coaches, your teammates, your roommates, your coworkers. Um, Jesus, would you reveal yourself to Tom? Jesus, would you reveal yourself to Mary? Um, sometimes it's even helpful to pray that way for people that you don't get along with well because it does kind of change the scope of, of how you think about it. Unless it's like, Jesus, reveal yourself. Like, rider on a white horse with a sword, go after him. Not, not that. But you know what I'm saying. Sometimes just, so we've been praying that way. And then we've been, I've, been, I've asked you to, to uh, read this, memorize it, whatever, this particular verse, because if we're going to see Jesus... Jesus himself, in the Gospel of John, John wrote Revelation, Jesus himself already told us one of the ways in which we can be assured we'll see him, all right? So read this out loud with me, all right? Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. And a few weeks ago, I had some of these yellow cards sitting out. I lost mine already. Here it is. We just have some sitting around our house. I drive my kids to school. I make them read it out loud. I know they don't always want to, but I, we do that. Just different ways to kind of get it into your head. All right, so whatever, that, whatever it looks like for you, I'm going to encourage you to do that. All right, next slide. So we've been doing Revelation. Revelation was written about 96 AD, about 60 or so, 65 years after Jesus died. John, who was a disciple of Jesus, who had been a friend of Jesus and was there when he died, 
John is probably one of the last remaining disciples still alive. Most of them had been martyred, had been killed because of their testimony about Jesus. And John had been exiled in an island called the Isle of Patmos off the coast of what is now modern-day Turkey. All right? There are seven different churches in this part of the book of Revelation that John is told by the Spirit of Jesus, this is what I want to say to these churches. So John is simply acting as the transcriber for Jesus who has things to say to these churches. And a few weeks ago we did Ephesus. And this again, this is modern day Turkey over here. We did Smyrna. Today we're going to do two different churches. Oh, just go to the next slide too. Just to give you a sense of size. That's about how that would fit in terms of geography. Go ahead, next one. We're going to do the two churches of uh, Pergamum or Thyatira. Now, my wife asked me whether it's Pergamum or Pergamum. I've heard it both ways, so whichever one you think is the correct way, just go ahead. You know, it's okay. I said Pergamum, but I think it might be Pergamum, so my wife may have been right. I'll say that publicly. My wife is right. I was wrong. Um, I think it's Pergamum, but I just... Those cities don't exist anymore, so we don't pronounce it. And Thyatira, all right? Now, the she you have right here, you just read about Pergamum, all right? Have it on the screen. You can't read that font. That's why I put it on here, okay? Pergamum was a city not unlike Bloomington. It was an intellectual, cosmopolitan kind of town. It was known for a big library. It was known for a lot of religious observations and a spirit of religiosity and a lot of different religions. But it was that kind of a town, kind of an intellectual, cosmopolitan town, all right? And you just read that. You just read what Paul wrote, or not Paul, what John wrote, what Jesus was saying to the church of Pergamum. And you noticed some things that he was saying. And it's like every other one of the churches that Jesus addresses, it starts off with some kind of, this is from Jesus, and then some kind of visual picture. Like in this case, I'm the one with a sharp two-edged sword. And then the second paragraph, typically, is some kind of affirmation. Jesus gets out his red pen and he says, there's some really good things going on with your church. And then the third paragraph is the paragraph we would rather skip over and don't want to see that page of the paper when we get it back. But Jesus says, but I have some complaints against you. And then the last couple of paragraphs is kind of a call to repent, change. And then the last part is, is but this is what I will give you if you overcome. All right. So you've read Pergamum. I'm going to read Thyatira here in a second. You can follow along with me. And I want you to notice any similarities, which is obviously why we're doing this, similarities between the two churches in terms of what John is writing down that Jesus is saying to these churches. All right. So now Thyatira was also a city not too far from per- Pergamum. It was not so much of an intellectual cosmopolitan city. It was mostly a city made up of kind of of uh, guilds and workers, so kind of labor unions and blue-collar workers. It's a different kind of town. It had been a military outpost, so it was mostly occupied by what I'll just say blue-collar people as opposed to the intelligentsia of Pergamum and the political elite, all right? But it's interesting that what Jesus has to say to both these two cities has some similarities, and what I want you to listen for is not just similarities to these two cities, but similarities as to where that might speak into you. Because we're not just reading this to study historical facts. We're reading this because we believe the Spirit still speaks. And he speaks to the church of Bloomington or the church of Exodus Church in Bloomington. And he speaks to individuals in that church, all right? So follow along as I read the church in, to the church in Thyatira. 
And uh, I've kind of tried to keep the paragraphs from the left side and the right side a little bit consistent in terms of the theme, and you'll notice some similarities, all right? Write this letter to the angel of the church in Thyatira. This is, again, this is Jesus telling John, write this letter. This is a message from the Son of God whose arms, whose eyes are like flames of fire, whose feet are like polished bronze. I know all the things you do. I've seen your love, your faith, your service, and your patient endurance. And I can see your constant improvement in all these things. All right, smiley face, check plus, way to go. And I'm not demeaning by saying smiley face. Jesus is saying, way to go. But I have this complaint against you. You're permitting that woman, that Jezebel who calls herself a prophet, to lead my servants astray. She teaches them to commit sexual sin and to eat food offered to idols. Right? If you're paying attention on the Pergamum part, you'll notice that exact phrase flip around. She teaches them to commit sexual sin and eat food offered to idols. I gave her time to repent. She does not want to turn away from her immorality. And we don't know in that, we don't know if the woman's actual name was Jezebel, but it was obviously a, a real person in this real church who was teaching and influencing people toward uh, sexual morality and eating meat sacrificed to idols. We'll talk about that in a second. Therefore, this is Jesus now speaking, all right? This is Jesus. Notice the correctiveness of his words, but it sharpness of his words, the, the intensity of his words here. Therefore, I will throw her on a bed of suffering, and those who commit adultery with her will suffer greatly unless they repent and turn away from her evil deeds. I will strike her children dead. Ouch. Then all the churches will know that I am the one who searches out the thoughts and intentions of every person. And I will give to each of you whatever you deserve. Keep in mind, this is being spoken to the church. Jesus is not addressing the culture and saying this all immoral culture. He's saying, those of you who say you are my followers, I'm addressing you. And within your midst, you are allowing and tolerating certain things. Jesus loves his church. It's his bride. And he will correct us if he needs to. Verse 24, but I also have a message for the rest of you in Thyatira who have not followed this false teaching. Deeper truths that they are called, depths of Satan actually. I will ask nothing more of you except that you hold tightly to what you have until I come. To all who are victorious who obey me to the very end, to them I will give authority over all the nations. They will rule the nations with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. They will have the same authority I received from my father and I will also give them the morning star Anyone who with ears to hear, which every one of the seven church letters ends this way, anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. All right, now I want you to notice in the first paragraph or the second paragraph, uh, Jesus is giving affirmation. So on the left side, if you have your red pen, I want you to circle remain loyal. All right, remain loyal on the left side. And on the right side, I want you to circle love, faith, service, and patient endurance. Because what Jesus is saying here to start with, he, he's affirming them. And uh, here's a question I want you to ask yourself. Put the next one up there. Currently, what in your life do you believe makes Jesus proud of you? Now, some of you might say, well, that sounds a little bit, I don't know, of Jesus being proud of me. Maybe one of those words even sticks out to you. 
Maybe there's a loyalty you've, you've shown to Jesus in spite of some darts that have been coming your way. Uh, maybe there's some endurance. Or maybe you've just done the best you knew how to live the Christian life as much as you understand it. Faith, love, service. You've nothing dramatically fantastic or no persecutions or anything, but you're doing the best you know how. And what Jesus says to that, if that's you, way to go. Way to hang in there. Way to keep moving on those things. Way to endure. Way to stand your ground. Way to, way to live that way in a faithful, consistent way. Don't skip over that in light of the, what comes next in these passages. And I think sometimes we skip over that there are times where Jesus wants to say to us, well done, way to go. Well done. Way to go. And again, Many of us may have lives that we think are just kind of the ordinary Christian lives. We're doing the thing. We're kind of hanging in there. We're trying to do the right things and we're trying to avoid the wrong things and as much as we can. And we don't really, we kind of wonder if Jesus kind of feels blah about us. But Jesus is saying, no, no, no. Way to go. You're doing some things right. Sometimes, just an aside here, as an exercise... Just challenge us sometime, whether you're driving alone in a quiet car or you write out in a journal, and just simply ask the question, Jesus, what do you think of me? And then listen to see what the Spirit of God brings to mind. Because I believe if you ask him, Jesus will tell you. doesn't mean the pen's going to automatically start writing. But often we tend to think Jesus' first words are going to be condemnation. And look where you're messing up again. But Jesus' first words are often affirmation. Like you've done a good job. The way you handled that situation at work, I know it was stressing you out, but way to go, you did a good job. The way you handled that relationship where it was kind of tense and there was some animosity, but you loved them, you were faithful, you forgave them, way to go. Way to go. The way you've handled that financial stress in your life and you're not quite sure, but yet you still were generous with your money toward others and toward the church, way to go. Way to go. Don't discount the small things you do for Jesus that you think go unnoticed, but he notices them. He even says, I know the things you do. I I notice it. I notice everything. So don't discount the small things you do brings great pleasure to Jesus. Don't discount that. Don't think you're a nothing or a no count or you don't matter to Jesus because you're not like saving the world in China or something like that. The small things you do matter. So what do you think he's proud of? Now, here's the next one, though. Let's talk about this line. I want you to underline on both sides where it says, by eating food offered idols and by committing sexual sin. On the left side, it says that way. On the right side, it says the flip side, committing sexual sin, eating food offered idols. All right? So just that, that phrase. In, per, in Pergamum, it was, it was uh, he talks about they were tolerating people who were teaching like what Balaam taught. Now, Balaam occurs in the Old Testament. He's a character. He's a real character in the Old Testament. He is a real character. But one of the things that he did was, was deceiving the people and kind of getting them to realize, you know, this sexual immorality thing and eating meat, sacrifice, idols, it's not that big of a deal. You have freedom in Christ. You can do what you want. God will forgive you anyway. After all, you get your ticket to heaven kind of thing. See, because earlier on in the history of the church, right after Jesus had died and resurrected, they were really struggling with what is it that we require morally 
of, the, of those who are becoming followers of Jesus who aren't Jews, who aren't restricted by the Jewish law. And their conclusion was, we're going to ask for two things from Christians among just the basic precepts of, the, of obeying the law and honesty and things like that. We're going to ask them to avoid sexual immorality, which is any sexual expression outside of uh, monogamous heterosexual marriage. And we're going to ask them to avoid eating meat sacrificed to idols. Now, my guess is every one of you can say, well, great, I've done one thing good. I haven't eaten any meat sacrificed idols lately. All right? I don't think anybody's done that. But let me explain the, the, the course of that, and they'll get to this question here, why, that, why that's meaningful. In, the, in those days, uh, meat sacrificed to idols was kind of part of the social system. The, the restaurants of those days were like these civic areas where if you were part of the carpenters group or you were part of the plumbers, I don't know if they had plumbing then, but maybe they did, plumbers or whatever, or if you were part of a certain political group, you would go to these places that almost served as, the, as then the modern day restaurants and they would all give homage to some god, some deity, to some, some spirit, and they would kind of grill the meat in his honor and then there'd be like a big social party. But it was that first part that felt a little bit like well, that's weird. And, and those who were Christians when they went there, and this is why the early church leaders told them not to do this, because what ends up happening, you start, it starts the progress of compromise, and you start doing things you don't really want to do because you don't want to be seen as odd, right? You don't want people in your community to think you're odd. Well, why doesn't he come to the, the meat festivals? Are they, they're better than us? Why doesn't, why, does, why doesn't that family next door to us ever go to the, the temple of Aphrodite when we have these big celebrations? I mean, he's a carpenter and he's part of our group. Why don't, do they think they're better than us? So we know what this gets to? This whole meat sack, it gets to the root of all of us desperately wanting to feel accepted by our social groups. Every one of us knows what that's like. Every no, one of us knows that if our social groups include people who are not followers of Jesus, they will often do, attend, think, or watch things that you know inside of you there's a sense of, I don't think this is bringing me to where I want my heart to be. Because it was all about, I want to fit in. And if we were living in Thyatira in AD 96, we would desperately want to fit in. And the way you fit in was, well, you just... You go to the feasts, yeah. They do this sacrificial thing to the gods and we just kind of try to look down on that part and try to pretend it's not happening. But you still go because you want to fit in, right? Nobody wants to be different. The, the, the thing we fear often as Christians, wait, I, don't want the, I don't want my non-Christian friends to think I'm weird or different. So I'll, I'll try to do as much as I can that feels, I'll accommodate as much as possible. And that's where this question comes from then, okay? So when I, you fill in the blank, when I go to blank, could be a location, could be a certain person's home, could be a party, could be a, a certain kind of entertainment, it could be a TV show, it could be uh, a chemical addiction you have or something you like. When I go to the bottle, when I go to alcohol, when I go to a movie, when I go to this person's house, when I go to this thing, when they, whatever it is, I usually end up doing things I don't want to do and being the kind of person I don't want to be. That's the heart of the whole media sacrifice idols. That you end up doing things because you so much don't want to be excluded and you want to fit in. So you might do, say, attend, read, watch because you want to fit in. And, but yet when you do those things, you 
you kind of come away feeling like I need to kind of brush some stuff off. Not that the people you're with are like dirty people, but spiritually, you know that wasn't moving you in the direction that you want in terms of being fully alive. I mean, one of the things, this is a kind of a parenting thing my wife and I have learned, and my wife actually is really good at this. You know, when our kids want, this, this is kind of a, this might be kind of a uh, tense thing with some people, but recently one of our kids wanted to go see a movie, and we check online what the movie's about, and it just seemed like there was a, for that particular child of ours, the particular phase in life that person is, we just thought, you know what, and, and, her, and it was her friends that wanted her to go. So, she wants to fit in, she wants to be one of them, and we told her, you know what, we know you want to be with your friends and have fun, but you need to tell them no, because that is not going to be the kind of movie. It's not legalism. We felt like we wanted to protect her heart. And it, was, it, was, it, it hurt me to see her, well, okay, I'll call her and tell her I can't go. And, but it's, it's, that's, the, that's what I'm talking about. But we deal with that as adults, too. Sometimes you've been invited to things. And again, I'm not saying don't spend time with non-Christians. I'm not saying that. But when you spend time with people or places or events that suck you into a certain way of thinking, that's what you have to be really careful about. You're not rejecting the people. It's what you know you want to be. And though that is not helping you. If anything, it's weighing you down. So there's where this question comes from. That both the Pergamum church and the Thyatira church were dealing with. Because in the Pergamum church, it was Balaam the spirit of Balaam and the Thyatira church it was what's well called the spirit of Jezebel because we don't know if the person's name was Jezebel but it was interesting it was the same issue in both churches sexual immorality and eat, make, eating meat sacrificed to idols so that's a big it must be a big issue it showed up twice in two of the seven in the seven churches and it shows up all throughout the stories of scripture where God's people ends up either accommodating the culture because they want to fit in they don't want to be seen as odd or the next one, sexual morality. Now go to this next one. And here we're, I'm, going to get some, I'm going to speak somewhat directly on some things here. In the first church in Pergamum, and you can't see the words on there, but I want you to circle the, word, the words you tolerate. Verse 14 on the left. You tolerate. Because this is what Jesus' complaint was. You're tolerating this kind of life style. Eating, being sacrificed, idols, and sexual morality. And on the right side, on verse 20, I want you to circle, you are permitting. Because in, in Pergamum, they were tolerating. They were okay with. They weren't really confronting or challenging that situation. And in Thyatira, they were permitting something. Yeah, it's not a big deal. I mean, what they do in their privacy life is not my business. But again, we're talking about people in the church, people who have claimed to be followers of Jesus. We're not talking about criticizing the culture of sexual morality. Because if somebody's not a follower of Jesus, they will do whatever their body wants to do, and that's fine. I mean, it's not fine, but that's just the way it is. We're talking about the church. We're talking about people like us. And here's two questions I want to ask. And again, they're, kind of the, they're going to be kind of pointed, but they need to be because Jesus, if you've noticed in this passage, he's quite pointed. First question is this. Are you permitting any sexual sin in your own life? Is there anything that you're like, yeah, it's not that big of a deal. I mean, I'm not really doing that. Yeah, I'm doing this, but I'm not doing that. And I think this is probably, I don't know. I really should be this, but I'm not that, so I'm this. 
I know how that goes because I've thought that way before, okay? I've told you before my struggle early on in my life with pornography, and it's easy how to, how to justify, well, can I have something, Jesus? I mean, I... We have that little game there. But are you permitting that in yourself? Are you giving yourself permission to do something that Jesus wouldn't give you? Second question, and this is where it becomes a little bit like, ooh, I don't know what to do with this one. Are you tolerating sexual sin in the life of another follower of Jesus? Again, key phrase here, another follower of Jesus. I I remember one time I was talking to a friend of mine years ago, and they were talking about a friend of theirs named John. Nobody knows this person, so nobody knows who John is. And he said, yeah, John's a really good Christian. He still sleeps with his girlfriend, but he's a really good Christian. And I was like, I was like whoa, 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 just rewind what you just said. Oh, he's a really good Christian. He does Bible study. And I said, well, what'd you say after that? Well, he still sleeps with his girlfriend and they're not married. Yeah, but he's a really good Christian. And I was like, well, it's not really possible. I mean, it's almost like you can have your spiritual life and I do all these great spiritual things, but I do this on the side. And you may have friends like that. You may have acquaintances like that. In the church again, people who are followers of Jesus. I'm not talking about your friends who are doing what their natural instincts will tell them to do because they're not following Jesus. And your first reaction and my first reaction is, well, you know, that's kind of their own private business, isn't it? I mean, who am I to judge them? Because aren't we supposed to judge, judge not lest you be judged? Which that passage is one of the most misunderstood in Scripture because what it means is don't speak up, don't condemn them. That's condemn, there's condemning judgment and then there's discerning judgment. We're called all over the Scripture to exercise discerning judgment. And there may be a time you may have to go to someone and challenge them Again, if they claim to be a follower of Jesus, challenge them on some of the choices they're making. Not in a, not in a spirit of condemnation where you're standing up them and sh- wagging your figure down at them, but in a spirit of, of uh, more like this. It's more that like you're sitting across somebody and you're appealing to them. You're not standing on your high horse shaking your finger. And it seems like this matters to Jesus, right? Doesn't it seem that way? It seems like it matters to Jesus that people are in the church are not only doing things and, say, and being a part of things to make them feel included, eating meat, sacrificed idols, but they're engaged in sexual morality and it's not really a big deal. And, but Jesus is a big deal to Jesus because you know what the heart is? You know what the heart of sexual sin is? The heart of sexual sin is I've got to find joy in life somewhere. And so that's a really good place to find it I'm not sure if Jesus is really pulling through on his end of the bargain. We don't think this consciously. That's what's going on. Because I, I, I got, my life is kind of discouraging, depressing. I need something, Jesus. Surely you understand. He's like, no, I don't. No. Because it's not going to help you become the person you want to be. It's not. And you'll notice, and, and then he says you'll notice, uh, go to 16 on the Pergamum side. He says, repent of your sin. This is Jesus speaking now, all right? The Lamb of God. Or I will come to you suddenly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. So he's talking about there may be people that are doing things that are in the body of Christ that you know. You need to repent of your 
giving in to fear. Well, I don't want them to think I'm judgmental, so I'm not going to say anything. Repent, or Jesus, I'm going to come fight them. I will come after them. And it's just like, whoa, Jesus, back off, man, you know, kind of thing. And then on the other side, verse 22, about the same situation. Therefore, it talks about the Jezebel spirit, those people who are in the body of Christ but continue to kind of practice and think it's okay to do certain things, sexual sin and accommodating the culture. Therefore, I will throw her on a bed of suffering and those who commit adultery with her will suffer greatly unless they repent and turn away from her evil deeds. I will strike her children dead. Wow, Jesus. There's something about sexual sin that he understands will kill you if you leave it unchecked. It's not just, and some of you say, I know people say, and I've thought this before, well, you know, greed is sin too, and you know, arrogant people are sinful, and I don't do it. And sex, you know, sexual sin is not any greater than other sins. But scripture actually says in many places, there's a, there's a degree of, the kind of offense to God sexual sin is, has a greater effect on you than other things. Yes, God wants people to be honest and not be arrogant and not be whatever else. But don't use that as an excuse to justify your own sexual sin. And if you're one of those people, if you're one of those people who you are tolerating that in your own life, here's your options. Option A, repent and trust that Jesus wants you to become fully alive in his way. Or option B is, Jesus will come and fight you and throw you on a bed of suffering. That's your option. And you might say, well, but I, 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 I like this. I, I, I need this part of my life. Okay, that, that's, that, that's the option that Jesus gives us. Either repent and believe this is what I'm gonna, what I can do for you, or I will come fight you, and I will throw you on a bed of suffering. And it's not because God is anti-sex; it was His idea, right? And it was one of God's greatest ideas ever. It was His idea. It wasn't like Adam and Eve started sleeping together, and God's like, "Oh no, no, I can't believe that." No, it was His idea. It's a beautiful, incredible thing, an image of the, the love God has for his people and Christ has for his church. But he knows what will lead us to life and what will lead us to death. And so he says, if you do it this way, I, and if, you're, if you say you're one of my followers, I will come and fight you. I will come and fight you and I will throw you. I will make life miserable for you until you turn back and follow me because it's that big of a deal because that's not the way you're going. It's not going to bring you life. Now, what, does he want, what kind of people does he want us to be? Now, go down to the last paragraph on the left. The, so it's, it's the affirmation and it's the correction. And you're probably like me and you're thinking, wow, I've kind of lost a lot of affirmation in the midst of that correction. You know, I kind of wish Jesus would do it separately. Okay, he didn't. Okay, whatever. But in the end, here's what he says. Anyone with ears to hear, I'm on the Pergamum side, verse 17. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he's saying to the churches. To everyone who's victorious, I will give some of the manna, circle manna. I will give some of the manna that has been hidden away in heaven, and I will give to each one a white stone, circle white stone. All right? Now on the right side, let's go, to, let's go up the coast of Thyatira. Let's just jump, jump down to 27. To them, in other words, those who are victorious, I will give authority, circle authority, over all the nations. And then at the end of verse 28, I will also give them the morning star. And I'll explain this and we'll... 
So the four things you just circled was Jesus said, if you're victorious, if you... Uh, go, to the, go to the next question here, and I'll ask that in a second. If you're victorious, if you choose to repent, if you choose... For those of you who are already living a faithful life, keep going that direction. Keep following that direction, and you're heading the right way. For those of you who are kind of living tolerant lives and permitting things in you and others, change your ways. And this is what Jesus said. This is where you're going if you follow what I'm saying. He says, I'll give you manna. All right? Manna represents, in a, in a nutshell, satisfaction and provision. I will give you what you need. You think you need sex. You think you need sex outside of God's boundaries. You think you need to be accepted by your peers in a way that you'll compromise to get it. Jesus says, no, I'll give you what you need. You will be satisfied. And then the white stone, the white stone, he says the white stone will be engraved the name that no one understands but your own. You know what the white stone is? The white stone is, I'm, I'm going to tell you who you really are. You're going to understand. I mean, it's kind of like the question that uh, uh, Chitty had up there about who would play you in a movie. You know, somebody asked, said to me one time, think about what character and what movie you would like to be. I'll flip it around a little bit. What character and what movie would you like to be? And that may say something to you about who God made you to be. I don't mean, like, like in my case, I love the movie series Band of Brothers. It's about uh, World War II, true story. And there's a character in there named Lieutenant Winters that if I was not Matt Nussbaum, I would want to be Lieutenant Dick Winters. I mean, he's dead now. I don't want to be that, but in, in who he was. Because why? Because he, he was asked to engage in fierce battle and protect the lives of others while he was doing it. And there's times where they, is that my name, God? Do you, who do you call me? What, who do you, what do you see in me? Because God sees in every one of you something you don't even see in yourself. In you men, he sees you being a, a, a warrior of strength and passion on behalf of your marriage, your friends, or whatever, and, and, some, maybe, and some greater cause in life that you don't even think. You, you know, we tend to think, well, I'm not a warrior. I'm kind, of, I'm kind of back in the home front sharpening blades for people, but I'm not on the battlefront. No, that's what you, God wants you that. And women, he has names for all of us. He sees beauty in those of us. He sees strength in us. He sees, he sees things in us we don't see. And Jesus, if you, if you just continue to the way I'm telling you, I will show you who you are. This is the question. What kind of person do you want to be? And so we talk about, well, I, I want to be satisfied. Manna. I want to know who I am. I want to know who I really am. The white stone. Then over here it says, to them I will give authority. This is on the right side now, the fire time. You know what authority is? Authority is the freedom to act. I want freedom. But it's the freedom to act within what's been delegated to you, but it's freedom. I want, I want satisfaction and provision. I want to know who I am. I want freedom. And the last thing he says, I will give them the morning star. The picture there is glory. I, I will give you a fullness of who you are. Jesus says, if you do things my way, way to go with what you're doing well. Big red pencil on some of these things you need to correct. If you correct those things and go the way that I'm telling you to go, you will have the kind of freedom and passion and joy and satisfaction and life that you've never thought was possible. So that's what he says. And that's to challenge you. I'm going to ask you to do this. Just take this home with you and just... Put it somewhere in your house where you read it a couple times this week and just remind yourself of what Jesus has promised to us. And then we're going to close the next slide here. Um, this is over and over. This sense of overcoming shows up in the book of Revelation a lot. 
and they overcome because of the blood of the lamb by the word of their testimony. You can't be these kind of, if you're struggling with sin in your life, any of the sins we've talked about, or just the, the kind of accommodation, or, you will only change, not by willpower, but by allowing Jesus, like we said earlier, offering his heart to you and asking him, change me whatever you need to do, because it was through the blood of the lamb, it's through his provision that we become the kind of people we know we're meant to be. So that's why we do communion every Sunday, is because what we're trying to understand ourselves is, I need what Jesus gives me. I need that kind of power. I need the power of the Spirit in me to be the kind of person who is fully alive. So here's how we do it at Exodus. Um, we'll come up, uh, Tim and the other guys in the band will come up and lead us in a few more songs. While we're singing, we go ahead and take communion. What we do is you, you come on up as we're singing. We don't just fist by rows. We don't check who's up and who's down. We just come on up. And there'll be people at each of the aisles, some with bread, and you just tear off a piece, they'll offer it to you. Then they'll offer you the cup, dip it in the cup. It's just how we do it here. And then most people eat it right here. Some take it back to their seats. It's up to you, however you want to do that. Anyone is welcome who would say, as much as I know how, I'm giving my heart to Jesus. All right? Same time at the side where it says prayer underneath that backboard over there. There's people in that room to pray for you about anything could be related to today's sermon, could be something totally different. But just what do you want someone to pray for you and encourage you about? All right? Let me pray, and then we'll sing. Jesus, um, thank you that you gave your body and your blood, and that what Scripture says, you opened a new and living way. So we're not stuck in our fears of not fitting in. We're not stuck in our fear that you're withholding joy and life from us. But we believe that you came to give us uh, everything you promised. So we remember that when we say we remember what you told us. And we want to remember you by remembering your promises that you will give us all that you promised. And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.